Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Happy New Year. My essay this week is called The Best of the Rest, 10 Favorite Books from 2011. One of the great things about reviewing a book a week for Journey with Jesus is that I can read whatever I want. Consequently, my reading habits have become highly eclectic five miles wide and six inches deep. Our comprehensive index of book reviews, for example, organizes our reviews under 14 different subject categories like history, politics, science, art, and memoir. Careful observers might notice one peculiarity about my reading habits. Only a dozen fiction titles in over 400 reviews in eight years including, by the way, two each by Anne Rice and Marilyn Robinson. Don't ask me why I don't read much fiction. I don't know why. I resolved to read more fiction last year and made a modest effort, but otherwise I remain stuck in my nonfiction ways. Unless someone loans me a title, I get all my books from the public library. Every once in a while, I'll buy a book like the spectacular collection of cosmic photos called Far Out in 2009 by Michael Benson. I'm also not a gadget guy, and my writing requires me to stare at a computer screen way too long already, so I never use an e-reader, nor do I want one. I read one book at a time, and if I start a book, my obsessive-compulsive nature makes me finish it. Over the holidays, I looked back over the 52 books that Journey with Jesus reviewed this year. There's no accounting for personal tastes, of course. I was so captivated by the book House of Prayer No. 2 by Mark Richard that I devoured it in a day. But after my wife finished it, she just shrugged her shoulders. Anyhow, here are 10 favorite titles from 2011. I've lifted, listed them alphabetically by author and in no particular order. For my full review on the website, you can click on the book title. Number one, G.W. Clark, Translation and Introduction, The Octavius of Minuncius Felix, number nine, number 39, Ancient Christian Writers, New York Newman Press, 1974, 414 pages. <clears throat> How did elite Romans view the early Christians? And how did the Christians respond? Minuncius Felix of the early 3rd century gives us one snapshot of this exchange in his dialogue between two friends. Cecilius presents his pagan criticisms. He derides Christians as utter boars and yokels, ungraced by any manners or culture. In style and content, their scriptures were crude. They adhered to absurd doctrines like the resurrection of the body and providence. Rumors about their cannibalism, incest, and infanticide were well known. They were antisocial, too, avoiding the theater and the games, and apolitical, refusing to run for office. The Christians, said Cecilius, quote, do not understand their civic duty, end quote. This book provokes a complex and controversial question. To what extent were upper-crust Romans turning to the faith by the late 2nd century? 
Number two, Lema Gaboe with Carol Mithers, Mighty Be Our Powers, a memoir, How Sisterhood, Prayer, and Sex Changed a Nation at War. New York Beast Books, 2011, 246 pages. Lema Gaboe's memoir hit the bookstores in September of 2011, just one month before she won the Nobel Peace Prize with two other women. One night she had a dream in which God spoke to her, gather the women to pray for peace. That dream became Liberia's Christian Women's Peace Initiative, in which Christian and Muslim women joined forces. They gathered in the mosques and markets, shared their personal horror stories, held weekly prayer meetings, denied men sex until peace came, forced Charles Taylor to peace talks in Ghana, and then in Ghana they barricaded the do-nothing men in their plenary hall until they signed peace accords. After the 2000 accords, they were instrumental in disarming the country registering voters and electing Ellen Johnson Sirleaf as Africa's first woman head of state. Mighty be our powers. Number three, Peter Godwin, The Fear, Robert Mugabe and the Martyrdom of Zimbabwe. New York, Little Brown and Company, 2010, 371 pages. Peter Godwin has reported from 60 countries as a foreign correspondent, but in this book he returns to his childhood home of Zimbabwe. In 1980, the nation won its independence and Robert Mugabe, born in 1924, was elected president. He's still president and the world's oldest leader. Zimbabwe once enjoyed one of the highest standards of living in Africa. But under Mugabe's reign of terror, the country has redefined state dysfunction. Unemployment is 94%. Life expectancy has plummeted from 60 to 36. One-third of the population has fled the country. The country has a $1 trillion banknote. Godwin's book is a startling expose of Mugabe's torture state especially as that was unleashed during the presidential and parliamentary elections of 2008. He writes, I'm bearing witness to what is happening here, to the sustained cruelty of it all. I have a responsibility to amplify this suffering, this sacrifice, so that it will not have happened in vain. The Fear, Robert Mugabe and the Martyrdom of Zimbabwe. Next up is Philip Jenkins, The Lost History of Christianity, The Thousand-Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and How It Died. New York, Harper One, 2008, 315 pages. Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox churches all dismissed the Nestorians and Monophysites as heretics. Consequently, those histories were lost to the rest of Christendom. This is startling, for both groups affirmed the decrees of Nicaea. We must never think of these churches as fringe sects rather than the Christian mainstreams, writes Philip Jenkins. 
And when the Nestorian Patriarch Timothy became their leader of these churches around the year 780, he probably wielded more influence over more Christians than the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch in Constantinople. Of course, the gospel spread west to Rome and east to Constantinople, but it spread faster and further east thanks to the Monophysites and Nestorians, to what are now Armenia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, India, Tibet, and even China. Jenkins's book is a work of historical retrieval and reconstruction. But he also considers the near extinction of Christianity in these lands. Between 1200 and 1400, almost all of these churches were vanquished by Islam, except for remnants like Coptic Christians in Egypt. A stunning reversal of fortunes for a once powerful presence. Philip Jenkins, The Lost History of Christianity. Next is Dermot McCulloch, Christianity the First 3,000 Years, New York Viking 2010, 1,161 pages. The Oxford scholar Dermot McCulloch tells the Christian story in all its staggering diversity, with attention paid not only to the Latin West, Catholic and Protestant, and the Orthodox East, but also to the believers whose stories have been marginalized or forgotten. Syriac non-Chalcedonian churches, both Monophysite and Diophysite. The mission impulse of the earliest believers for good and ill is also another theme. Majestic in scope and meticulous in scholarship, McCulloch has written the new gold standard for a one-volume history of Christianity. The 68 full-color plates of art, architecture, sculpture, and photographs, and 100 pages of footnotes and bibliography for further reading are alone worth the price of the book. Although the book retails for $45, I see on Amazon that you can purchase a new copy for under $25. Dermot McCulloch, Christianity, the First 3,000 Years. Next is a book of poetry by Mary Oliver, Swan, Poems and Prose Poems. Boston Be Beacon Press, 2010, 63 pages. In 2007, the New York Times described Mary Oliver as far and away this country's best-selling poet. Swan is her 20th volume of poetry, in addition to eight volumes of prose and two audiobooks. Her collection, American Primitive, 1984, won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, while New and Selected Poems, 1992, won the National Book Award. Oliver is famous for her solitary walks near her home in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and how those walks provided a rich fund of material for her poetry. The 45 poems in Swan follow this tried-and-true method. Her empirical observations about nature lead to spiritual intimations about humanity. In the poem from which the book gets its title, Swan, she concludes, And did you feel it in your heart, how it pertained to everything? 
And have you, too, finally figured out what beauty is for? And have you changed your life? Mary Oliver, Swan. Next is Mark Richard, House of Prayer Number 2, A Writer's Journey Home, New York, Doubleday, 2011, 207 pages. House of Prayer Number 2 is Mark Richard's first book of nonfiction. What makes it wonderfully strange is that he's written the memoir in the second person. The effect suggests the distance and detachment that he experienced toward his own body as a crippled child and toward people who marginalized him as quote-unquote special. He not only tells how he became a writer, he also tells how he found redemption in a place, quote, where only God knows how close you came to what could have been, and only his grace saved you from it. By the end of the story, Richard has his own call to ministry as the only white congregant at the Black House of Prayer Number 2, and is slain in the spirit as Mother Ricks places her hand on his shoulder and testifies about the fulfillment of a dream she had long, long ago. Next is Eugene Robinson, Disintegration, the Splintering of Black America. New York, Doubleday, 2010, 254 pages. There are 40 million African Americans in the United States. For decades, they have both enjoyed and endured a single interpretive narrative of a people with a homogeneous culture. This monolithic Black America, says Robinson, is gone forever. Blacks Black America has experienced a radical disintegration, he says, that is both hopeful and dispiriting. Robinson proposes that Black America has fragmented into four groups. An enormous Black middle class has entered America's mainstream. Elite transcendents include people like Oprah and Obama. Emergents are comprised of immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean, and then blacks in biracial marriages. Fourth and finally, there are the abandoned, who are profoundly isolated and have created what Eugene Robinson calls their own cultural ecosystems. Eugene Robinson, Disintegration. Ninth is Jason K. Stearns, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, The Collapse of the Congo and the Great War of Africa. New York, Public Affairs, 2011, 380 pages. The deadliest war of our generation has been the underreported conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, former Zaire. Since the start of conflicts there in 1996, 5 million people have perished out of a population of 50 million, a staggering 10% of the population. How do you understand a war in a country the size of Western Europe with 200 ethnic groups that involve nine border countries, the interventions of countries like France, Belgium, the United States, Cuba, and China? 
and 30 rebel militias and proxy armies composed of mercenaries from as far away as Serbia. Jason Stearns has written a critically acclaimed account based upon 10 years of living and reporting from the region. His book bears witness to the untold stories of many millions of Congolese citizens. Dancing in the Glory of Monsters Tenth, Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. New York Random House, 2010, 622 pages. In America's Great Migration, between 1915 and 1970, six million blacks migrated from the South to the American North and West. When the migration began, for example, about 90% of blacks lived in the South. Sixty years later, only 50% of them did. Wilkerson, who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1994 as the Chicago bureau chief for the New York Times, interviewed 1,200 migrants for her book. She humanizes their history by telling the stories of three families who represent the three main paths that blacks took out of the South, up the Atlantic seaboard to the Northeast, up the spine of the country to the cities of the Midwest, and then west, mainly to California. We owe a debt to these brave people who fled what Wilkerson calls a feudal caste system, and who forced America to confront 200 years of racism. And then finally, for good measure, I have book number 11 for my top 10. Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, 1492 to Present. New York, HarperCollins, 1980, 729 pages. Who gets to write history and so shape the narratives by which we live? Most history is written from above, that is, by and about elites, like presidents, generals, and scholars. Howard Zinn, 1922-2010, to 2010, reads and writes history from below, from the perspective, for example, of a coal miner, a black slave, or a Vietnamese rice farmer. Among his more than 30 books, A People's History is Zinn's best-known work, having sold more than a million copies. He wrote the book, he says, to awaken a greater consciousness of class conflict, racial injustice, sexual inequality, and national arrogance, especially as those are expressed in the marriage of predatory capitalism, permanent militarism, government power, and unjust laws. Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States. The best of the rest. My effort at 11 books from 2011. For books this week, we have a combination book and music review by our music editor, David Werther. The book is called Harry Belafonte, My Song, 
New York, Alfred A. Knopf, 2011, 469 pages. And then the CD, Harry Belafonte, Sing Your Song, The Music, by Sunny Music, 2011. A review by our music editor, David Werther. The November 23, 1962 issue of Time magazine featured an article on folk singers. Joan Baez graced the cover. The article referenced the first artist ever to sell a million copies of an album, Harry Belafonte. They called him Belafoni. That the source of the snipe is not noted says more than a little about the critic's integrity. That said, there is in fact a grain of truth in the charge. Belafonte came to singing by way of acting, and at the end of his career, he judged himself to be a pretty good actor on the grounds that for years he managed to convince audiences that he was actually a singer. He began working in the theater as a stagehand at the American Negro Theater. The shy man he worked with behind the scenes, Sidney Poitier, would become his first real friend. Belafonte's formal schooling as an actor came by way of the GI Bill. A ninth grade dropout who once demanded that a library check the card catalog for works by Ibid he argued successfully for admittance into the New School for Social Research. His classmates there included Tony Curtis and Marlon Brando. After New School theater performances, Belafonte began stopping by the Royal Roost, a jazz club well where, for 50 cents, he could listen to Charlie Parker, Lester Young, and Ella Fitzgerald. When asked about his work, Belafonte invited Young and others to see him in a production of Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. In this particular production, he played the role of Troubadour, a newly conceived part that required him to sing some lead belly in Woody Guthrie. He says, I never would have had the nerve to present myself on stage as a singer, but as the Troubadour, I was an actor, singing in character. That made all the difference to me. While Belafonte saw himself as an actor singing, the jazz musicians heard a singer acting. They arranged for him to have a gig singing at the Royal Roost, and when Belafonte came on stage for his debut, he imagined that his sole accompaniment would be Lester Young's pianist Al Hag. So he was stunned when bassist Tommy Porter and percussionist Max Roach took the stage. And then I was utterly floored when Charlie Parker came on with his saxophone. I couldn't believe it, he wrote. Four of the world's greatest jazz musicians had just volunteered to be the backup band for a 21-year-old singer that no one had ever heard of, making his debut in a nightclub intermission. Belafonte's star rose quickly, and for the rest of his life he would be paying it forward using his fame to introduce audiences to great but unknown or underappreciated talents like Miriam Makibia. My Angel, one of the selections on Sing Your Song, the music, features Miriam Makiba. Sung in Swahili, the song tells the story of an impoverished man who can't marry the woman he loves. 
As a whole, the cuts on Senior Song are wide-ranging. Calypso music on the CD includes Coconut Woman, Island in the Sun, Matilda, Jamaica Farewell, and of course, Banana Boat Song, Day-O. The latter two songs appeared on Belafonte's 1956 album, Calypso, the first album ever to sell a million copies. Ironically, the incredibly popular Deo was almost an afterthought, a song added to fill out the Calypso collection. On a superficial level, the song is about workers looking forward to the end of their shift. But on a deeper level, it's about anyone laboring in darkness and longing for liberation, symbolized by daybreak. Two of the selections on Sing Your Song serve as foils. In the prison song, Sylvie, a desperate enfeebled man cries out for a drink. In contrast, the exuberant slave song, Jump Down, Spin Around, reveals an indomitable side of humanity. Sing Your Song is a many-sided collection, and if the critic who cried phony in the November 62 issue of Time is still around, he or she may still be calling into question Belafonte's authenticity. At times, Belafonte did so himself, yet he came to see that his authenticity lay in the breadth of his material. He writes, different voices but a shared humanity. This was my platform, my authenticity, my politics, my song. Harry Belafonte, My Song, a memoir, emphasizes Belafonte's political activism by beginning in, in media res. Freedom writers had been murdered in Mississippi, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was worried that if it pulled out then, the Ku Klux Klan would claim victory. But SNCC needed funding to stay in the South and called on Belafonte to raise the cash. Not only did he do so in quick order, but he and his friend Sidney Portier delivered it. A handoff was necessary, as wiring tens of thousands of dollars to despise SNCC activists in Mississippi was out of the question. Three key people shaped Belafonte's brand of activism. The words of his impoverished mother became his rosebud. She said, when you grow up, son, never ever go to bed at night knowing that there was something you could have done during the day to strike a blow against an injustice, and you didn't do it. Paul Robeson gave him his backbone. The Phi Beta Kappa valedictorian from Rutgers University, at a time when he was the sole black student on campus, who used his subsequent fame as an actor to speak out against injustice, served as a role model and inspiration. And then Martin Luther King Jr. gave him his heart. Growing up, up black in Harlem, Belafonte had to be won over to the tenets of nonviolence. Over time, their friendship blossomed and King became a frequent visitor in the Belafonte home. And Belafonte served as a mediator between King and Attorney General Bobby Kennedy. Harry Belafonte describes the harmonies of his life's relationships with King, Robeson, and many others in his memoir, in entitling the companion CD, Sing Your Song, Belafonte underscores his attention for his readers of my song to, quote, take a look at your own song. Is it really the melody you think it is? 
Or are there so many harmonic parts that you never took the time to understand the full value of your moment? The memoir by Harry Belafonte, My Song, and then his new CD, Sing Your Song, The Music. For film this week, I review Melancholia from the year 2011. The director Lars von Trier continues his dark view of the world with this story about two sisters. Justine, played by Kirsten Dunst, tries to be happy on her wedding day at a seaside estate, but she's in the grip of a long-standing clinical depression, which von Trier himself has suffered. She's alternately manic, erratic, and withdrawn, sometimes for good reasons, like her parents. Her sister Claire faces more than a personal crisis. She dreads a planetary catastrophe. A bright red star that's been hiding behind the sun is on a collision course with the Earth. And so the, role, and so the roles of the sisters reverse, and now Justine tries to comfort Claire. But she doesn't have much more to offer than nihilistic resignation. She says, the world's an evil place. We're all alone, and no one will miss it. There's no reason to grieve. The screenplay of Melancholia isn't great. The science is hokey, and the sisters' two stories don't connect. But the Danish director Lars von Trier is almost always worth a watch. Melancholia from 2011. And for the new year, we've posted a poem by Alfred Tennyson, who lived from 1809 to 1892. It's called A New Year's Poem. And I'm sure that some of these words will be familiar. Ring out wild bells to the wild sky, the flying cloud, the frosty light. The year is dying in the night. Ring out wild bells and let him die. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going, let him go. Ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out the grief that saps the mind for those that here we see no more. Ring out the feud of rich and poor. Ring in redress to all mankind. Ring out a slowly dying cause in ancient forms of party strife. Ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners, purer laws. Ring out the want the care, the sin, the faithless coldness of the times. Ring out, ring out my mournful rhymes, but ring the fuller minstrel in. Ring out false pride and place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right, ring in the common love of good. Ring out old shapes of foul disease. Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousand wars of old. Ring in the thousand years of peace. 
Ring in the valiant man and free, the larger heart, the kindlier hand. Ring out the darkness of the land. Ring in the Christ that is to be. Alfred Tennyson, A New Year's Poem. And thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net on New Year's Day, Sunday, January 1st, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.